All right, I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I'm the Nancy and Bob Magoon CEO and Director here at the Aspen Art Museum, and I'm super glad to have you all here for a conversation tonight with our Aspen Award for Art honoree for 2018, Rashid Johnson. The lecture tonight is, you can't hear me? Okay, can you hear me now? Better, we can turn it up a little. Hopefully. All right. Um, tonight's lecture is presented as part of the Questrom Lecture Series, and we are thankful to Alan and Kelly Questrom for underwriting this series. So, we also have sign language interpretation from the Aspen Camp for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, which you can see over there. Um, I'm going to give a brief introduction to Rashid and his work now, and then we will do a conversation. I'll sit down. Um, we will be scrolling through some slides of Rashid's work. I'm not talking probably specifically about them, but just having kind of an informal dialogue as we go. So uh, Rashid Johnson was born and raised in Chicago and lives and works in New York. He received a BFA in photography from Columbia College in Chicago and an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. His practice is varied across all media with an interest in abstracting forms and materials to discover deeper truths about our experience of the world and how we see it. His work has been the subject of recent solo exhibitions at the Milwaukee Art Museum, the Kempner Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, the Garage Museum of Contemporary Art in Moscow, the Grand Palais in Paris, the Drawing Center, the High Line, the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver, and of course, you know, he's getting the Aspen Award for Art tomorrow night, and we are working on a solo exhibition here in collaboration with the Tamayo Museum in Mexico City that will open on July 3rd, 2019 here and July 17th, 2019 in Mexico City. So without further ado, I'm going to sit down and we will get started. Welcome. Good to be here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak slowly because I'm assuming that most of you are on edibles. <laughs> and for anyone that's concerned that I was wearing the same outfit last night, you should understand that I have several of this same outfit. <laughs> and I consider this to be a uniform of sorts. So I did get back to my hotel room. So thank you for your concern. So talking about speaking slowly, uh, there's a film called Zootopia, and uh, there's a scene in it at the post office where the sloths are moving incredibly slowly, and, uh, you know, we could do that, too. So, pause between each word. So, um, I want to start off by asking you, um, I guess, kind of a general question. Since you work in a lot of different media, and we'll talk about some of your uh, recent projects, I'd like to ask where you feel most comfortable, both in your work and in life, and where you feel most uncomfortable. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, honestly, I feel most comfortable in the studio. It's really, for me, uh, a cathartic space. Uh, it's a safe space. None of you guys are there um, to judge me. I make my work available for those kinds of judgments later. But being in the studio, and, and honestly, um, as far as medium is concerned and approach is concerned, that's less of a, of, 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 um, of, a, of, of a thing that I think about when I'm, when I'm in that space. I just kind of resolve myself to being there and then seeing what kind of solutions come to, uh, to the problems that I'm, that I'm asking myself when I'm in the studio space. So when you talk about problems, what are you concerned about? I'm probably concerned about a lot of the same things that many of you are concerned about, to be completely honest. I'm concerned about us. Um, I'm concerned about you guys. I'm concerned about uh, the world that my son's going to be inheriting. He's six years old. I'm concerned about my personal anxiety disorder. I'm concerned about uh, race relations, gender issues, issues around homophobia, issues around how institutions function, uh, the environment. Um, if you, can, if you can name an ism, I'm probably concerned about <laughs> that ism. Uh, but in really as a whole, I think my practice kind of takes into account all of those concerns and then kind of brings them in to that space, that sanctuary, that, that, that studio. And I start to kind of resolve uh, our, our work through things 
Um, not so much one at a time, because I think that that would be unfair, plus it would take me so long, if you can really think about um, kind of addressing all of the things that I even just kind of brought up, uh, you know, a few seconds ago. But I kind of address, try to address so many of them at the same time and, and use different mediums and, and different approaches as, as a launching pad to at least start a conversation around some of, some of those issues. So how do you work to create a space for the viewer? Oh, that, that's a new one. Uh, that forces me to admit that I care about the viewer. Right. Which is a tricky thing. So right. That's a trick question. Um, and having said that, I do. I do, uh, I, I do have a concern for the viewer. I think there was a time in, in my practice where people often accused my work of, of having an opacity to it. And I think that that was a, a total misinterpretation of what it is I'm doing because I see what I do as being very generous. Uh, I think <clears throat> one of the failures in the interpretation of contemporary art uh, over the last, I mean, however many years is that we're supposed to interpret it through deconstruction. We're supposed to understand it through, through the course of metaphor, right? You're supposed to see a color are a theme, are a thing, and you're supposed to be able to diagnose, read, interpret, and regurgitate what that thing is. That is not what we're doing here. You know, that is not what contemporary artists are doing, and it's uh, oftentimes uh, leads to a, a grand misunderstanding of a lot of people's practices. My practice intention is to be quite generous. Um, I more often than not show you all of the tools, all of the things that I'm thinking about. I'm quite literal with them sometimes. I think there's almost a clumsiness around how literal some of the aspects can be. But it still leads to a more rigorous and thoughtful, hopefully, um, reading of the work. But that reading is, is, the audience is given agency to do that reading. So when I think about how I'm giving space to the audience, the first thing I think of is that I'm giving them agency. One is that I believe in my audience. I believe that the audience is incredibly sophisticated from you know, the person who knows the least about art that you can imagine to the person who imagines themselves to be quite literate. There's a sophistication and a thoughtfulness in the way that audiences approach art, especially when they come to it, you know, when they become witnesses to an art object. And I use that term very specifically because I think that there are, are ways to approach an art object. And I think being a witness to one is the most interesting. You know? Because witnesses are people who can recall things. You know, people who are looking at things are looking. You're not, there's no expectation for you to later define or recall or tell someone else what it is you saw. So I think that the, the most conscious art viewers, which I think most people are capable of doing, and most people actually, in most cases, do do, is they become witnesses to an art object. And if I can provide clues and breadcrumbs and, 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 uh, and, and, and start to address some of the concerns that any viewer who comes into a space might have, then, then I feel like I've made, I've made space for them to, to participate. I love that idea uh, of, I mean, I've always thought about it as active looking, but if you think about it as this idea of witnessing, um, then there's kind of responsibility to that recall too. Right, because the, to witness something also implies, as you're describing it, that there's some veracity to your description, right? So, um, and that brings into the that brings the element of truth into the into the witnessing, Absolutely. and the looking. So, if you were to witness your own work, uh, what would it tell a story? Would you tell a story as you were describing it to others? I think there's an opportunity for a lot of, of, of storytelling in, in the work. And I don't think that there's a direct kind of narrative that you're, you're you know, supposed to, 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 to uh, take through the work, a, a certain specific kind of journey. Um, I don't think that the work is necessarily intended to be read left to right. You know, I, I think that there are different moments in the work where you're able to enter it in, in, in orthodox ways like, like you would read, and there are opportunities to, to read it in, in less orthodox ways. Um, 
what would the story be that I'm telling? I, you know, I think that at different times and through different bodies of work, there have been different stories that I've been telling, uh, to be to be honest. I mean, in a work like this that we're looking at, you know, I'm, I'm just telling you to run, right? And I think run is, um, it's just one of the most powerful words. You know, it's a, it's a short word, but if someone were to stand up in this group today, now, and tell you all to run, you would be concerned, right? Like you would be, like your attention would be heightened. You would think to yourself, what are we running from, right? Some of you may even run, you know? Uh, and so, you know, a word like that, something that kind of like pushes you and punches you and, and, and causes action in a, in a work like that, it just kind of quickly begins to, 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 to address just this idea of escape for me, which has always been something that I've been interested in like how we escape, what does escape look like, what does escape for different people look like. In particular, in, in uh, the African American experience, I, I, I think about like the history of escape paths, right, like in, in, in America, whether it's from the south to the north, if you think about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman, et cetera, right, so it's this escape from the south to the north. And then you have this, uh, this, uh, if you think about Marcus Garvey, if anybody's familiar with like the Back to Africa movement and the Black Star Line, Marcus Garvey says, hey guys, this isn't a great place, let's go back to Africa. That's a failed movement, that doesn't work. And then you get into more of the abstract, the avant-garde, right? People like Sun Ra, the musician, who not only says he wants to escape, but he actually says he's from Saturn. <laughs> so he's like, you know what? Are there any kids here? He's like, I swear, I'm sorry. I've got a terrible habit of swearing. But he's like, fuck it. I'm not even from this place. If you guys want to come with me to Saturn, we can get the hell out of here. And then it kind of leads to uh, someone like Paul Beatty, who's an artist who uh, recently won the Booker Prize for literature for a book called The Sellout. And prior to that, he wrote a book called White Boy Shuffle. And he actually, in a joking way, and this is, it's hard to make this sound like a joke, but the book is actually quite funny suggests that all African Americans should just commit suicide. He's like, we should just get off this plantation, we should all commit suicide. So this idea of like escape and patterns of escape are been, have been things that I've kind of been negotiating, whether it's through thinking about celestial space, whether it's through thinking about land and movement, whether it's thinking about people flying, or people jumping in the air, which some of my films kind of begin to deal with. Um, so something as simple as the word run, right, written in neon, placed into a gallery space, for me, takes me on that whole journey that I just, uh, that I just laid out. So, um, yeah, sorry for that <laughs> diatribe. So actually that work run is going to be included in a show here at the Aspen Art Museum that opens in December, which is called Zombies, colon, pay attention, exclamation point. Um, and it bunch of text-based art um, as the equivalent of the 10 rules on how to survive the zombie apocalypse. So, uh, yep. <laughs> so, you, you talked about uh, the complexity of making things sound funny, which actually are funny, and um, wanted to ask you about humor in your work because I think some of your earlier work, it was more apparent? No, I'm, I'm obsessed with comedy. You know, I, I remain obsessed with comedy. As a young artist, you, you had a show like, uh, the, Dave, the Dave Chappelle show came out, and I thought, wow, this is an incredible vehicle, like, you know, comedy, because we can all kind of, there's only one, it's also the hardest art form, right? And that there's only one thing that you want the people to do. You know, if they're not laughing, then you failed, right? In, in most other mediums, most other art forms, uh, you can get all kinds of different reactions and appreciate them. If somebody cries, I'm like, oh, I touched you. If somebody laughs, then they thought it was funny. If so, you know, any number of emotions can can um, can come from a from a, an audience or a witness that can can make the artist feel that they've accomplished something. But in comedy, there's only that singular kind of reaction. And for me, you know, the ability to kind of think through how funny just the condition of being is, 
is something that I think is really important and something that collectively we all understand because oftentimes we see our experiences as being so different, you know, that we come from different backgrounds, whether it's economic, racial, uh, gender, et cetera. But we all do share so many characteristics and so many, so many things and comedy and humor um, are, are, are in, that, in that group. And so when I can do something that kind of begins to push the boundaries of how you are to respond to it and take away some of the, the, the more serious kind of components to the, to the things that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm addressing, right? Then I think it just kind of starts to unwind um, this kind of big bag of problems that, that, you know, my work seems that it can be negotiating and give you a different sense of agency and opportunity in the way that you can participate with it. So I know that the idea of empathy is really important in your work, and I wanted to ask you to talk about that. Want me to ask more? No, no. I, I think empathy is, listen, it's, it's huge in my work, but I think it's just huge for all of us. You know, and I, I don't want to go on a, on a tangent here, but what, being empathetic, right? Like caring about others is really the most important thing that we can collectively do. And if an artwork in any way begins to speak to this idea of empathy, our, our caretaking, and if I kind of break down some of my, my material employment, the things that I've used in the past, whether it's black soap, which is you know, something that you'll see scroll through several times, which is a material that's used by people, uh, it's a West African material that's used by people who have sensitive skin, right? So it's like essentially at that point, it's an empathetic material, right? It kind of begins to address the idea that there's somebody out there who has a sensitivity that this material needs to, to, to be used on in order for them to get clean without having whatever problem comes as a result. Same thing with a material like shea butter, right? A material like shea butter is a material that you put on your body that moistens your body, right? That kind of uh, rejuvenates your skin. And these, this, this idea of how those materials began to speak to the idea of, of empathy is, is, is how it starts to kind of raise its, its uh, tentacles and the work. But, you know, I guess generosity and empathy, again, kind of are married to me, right? That an artwork can give, you know, that it can give something back, that it's employable, that it gives an emotional resonance, that it gives kind of a physical kind of opportunity, whether you get to participate with it in a physical way or as a, you know, as a viewer. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's hard for me to, to totally frame that, but it's something that I'm thinking about like quite a bit is, is how empathy functions in my work and in, in the work of a lot of different artists. So one of the things that I think a lot about and I, and I talk about and I sometimes ask other artists about too is, is um, how much we need from art. And so you talked about uh, you know, what, what art can do and um, how do you balance that responsibility, I guess, as you're making art between people needing art to do something or be something and then also allowing art to just be you know, something and everything and nothing, you know, kind of simultaneously, right? Like, that's what I like about art. Well, I think art, art can, can very easily do both, um, to be honest. I mean, my intention is for, for an artwork to be able to be read as an object, right? That, that's dealing with the antecedent in art history. That's dealing with how mark making and gesture and material have existed historically. And a lot of what I do is a response to that. There's a second kind of component, uh, and maybe a little bit more rigorous one, in which I kind of begin to think conceptually about how those materials, how those marks, and how those marks and gestures and ideas in my hands become different than artists who may have employed similar things in the past. Um, it's, I think it's dangerous uh, to imagine that art has a job. And, and when we think of art as having a job, I think we're putting a weight on art that is uh, maybe unfair to artists as well as to, to artworks. But having said that, it's a capable tool. 
And I think it's oftentimes a slower tool. My, uh, my wife always talks about um, difficult times and how great art can come from difficult times. You know, it's interesting because I'm not positive that I agree with that. I don't think that artists have to be so lazy that they need calamity in order to make something interesting. I think that that's, uh, uh, that's a problem. But having said that, most art that responds very directly and very quickly to more problematic issues tends to be fairly anecdotal, tends to be fairly didactic, and um, is legible in a way that, and available in a way that more often than not lacks a certain kind of sophistication. And so I think art has got this incredible ability to make change over a long period of time. I think that it really seeps into the culture really slowly and really, uh, really kind of um, aggressively, but it just kind of seeps into us. And it's something that we kind of begin to understand. And I think uh, literature is a great example of this. I think uh, painting and sculpture is a great example of this. I mean, something as, as, as simple as a, as a book by James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, right? That comes out and it's addressing these really important topics and it's really kind of clumsy and crazy and tough and hard. But, I, you know, it's like 50 years later, 60, 70 years later, we're thinking and talking about, about that book and the effects of that book. And we may be learning more from that book today than we learned when it was published. And I think a similar thing can happen with a painting and a sculpture, is that we can learn something from it after it happens, a long time after it happens, whether that comes through the physical change of that artwork, you know, in the case of like the, the patina. Like, we all think we know Jackson Pollock, right? But like, only so many of us saw a Pollock when he made it, right? So it, it lived as a different object than the one that we're witnessing today. So it's the way that we're interpreting it, the way that we're looking at it, and the way that we're participating with that object is different. So the way that we're being affected by it after it was made is, is, uh, is an interesting thing to, to negotiate as an artist and as a viewer. So you talk a lot about literature, and um, part of what you'll do here for us next summer is to commission a dance performance. And, and you were talking earlier today about uh, the different texts that you were giving to the choreographer as sort of, I think you said, like breadcrumbs towards your psyche, uh, which I love that. And um, you have recently shot a film, uh, Native Son. Can you talk about why that story is important and why you wanted to do that for over a decade before getting to do so? It's a tough story, um, for, for those of you who are familiar. Um, it's a story about a young man in 1939 who gets a job working for a family. And <clears throat> in, in the story is told by the author, Richard Wright, it's a young boy who's in a fairly abject, impoverished family. And he gets this job, and by accident, he murders the daughter of, of this wealthy family. And he has to kind of figure out how to negotiate uh, either his surrender or how he'd get away. And, um, so it's, it's a book that I read when I, was, when I was younger, and it was given to me by my mother when I was, I want to say, 15. And she told me that this was a really, uh, was a difficult book. And she told me, honestly, that it was a book that she didn't particularly like. And I thought to myself, hmm, well, that's interesting, right? Like any radical kind of teenage thinker, I'm like, well, she must have missed something that I'm going to find that's going to be really interesting. And you know what it is, is it's this incredible kind of existential journey. And it's this incredibly difficult and strange and misanthropic protagonist. And I'd never seen a black character written that way. I'd never seen a black character who was exploring through kind of these existential kind of gr grievances like his condition and his life. Um, and it led me to wanting to tell that story, to, 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 to tell that story on screen and to contemporize that story. And so it's considerably more narrative and direct in, in its narrative approach than, than anything else that I've ever made. But I think it shares as a characteristic with the rest of my work this 
idea of there not being a specific kind of antagonist. You know? And if you look at my work and you look at how it functions, there's nobody specifically to blame in my work, right? I don't necessarily think of the condition um, of any group being uh, the result of the direct actions of individuals from any other group. I think about kind of the condition as it is institutional and as we are all kind of subject to it. And so in this film, unlike quite a few films that address a black protagonist negotiating a complex set of uh, uh, terms, there's no evil white guy who's like putting his fucking fingers together like this and plotting the end of like the black man's life, right? There's, that character doesn't exist either in my work and it, it continues to not exist in my film because I don't necessarily think that character exists. I think that collectively we've made some mistakes, you know? <laughs> we've done some things wrong collectively. So I don't like the idea that fingers get pointed in very direct ways because I don't think that that is an opportunity to resolve problems. So essentially, in my story, the antagonist becomes the collective us. Like, we are all invested and participants in the conditions and circumstances that lead to the decision that this young man makes, however problematic that is. And in that sense, we all have to take on a certain amount of responsibility. And I think that kind of collective responsibility is, is one of the things I'm just most interested in. Like, I, it's uh, one of those things I was telling um, Christopher the other day, you know, I barely have any friends who aren't in therapy because why aren't you looking at yourself? Like, what do you think you've done so well that you don't need to be thinking about what's going on and what the problems are that you are negotiating. Now, having said that, it's okay that you guys aren't in therapy, <laughs> but you should be, because you're fucked up. You've made some mistakes, and you need to start having a little bit more introspective look, and I'm sure many of you do, because there's a lot of Jews here. <laughs> I grew up in Skokie, I can say that. Uh, please. So, so you just made reference to Chicago uh, and um, interested in how that has, and, and you went to school there, uh, but how does place show up in your work, specifically and, and generally, because you also talked earlier about the idea of escape. And um, of course, there are different types of escape, psychological, philosophical, intellectual, but physical as well. So you often, you're, the escape that you often show is often a beach or um, a very lush green landscape. So make yeah. a connection for me there if there is one. I'm from Chicago, it's, it's freezing there. Ask Larry Fields, you know. <laughs> it's freezing there and, you know, so kind of growing up, I remember and it was a really interesting thing. I, you know, my family didn't travel a lot. We weren't you know, a big traveling family. My mother was an academic. We were middle class folks. My mother taught at Northwestern. So you know, we traveled through books and like, like literature. You know, like we took those kinds of journeys. But we didn't have you know, a ton of money. We just didn't, we didn't take a lot of vacations. But you know, there was always some kid who'd come to school with like a, a, sh like a Florida shirt or something. And I remember just being so jealous, you know, because like, I was thinking, like, I'd never seen a palm tree, right? Like, I'd never even, like, I didn't know what that looked like. And I just thought to myself, if I could figure out how to, like, get to one of those places, right, that it would be, like, some sign of success, right? Like, I'd accessed something that was um, prior not available to me. And then you go down to Florida, and then you're like, oh, it's Florida. Florida man's here. Like, he eats faces after he, like, smokes bath salts or whatever they do. And then you start to realize, oh, these other places have their own kind of issues, right? Uh, but, but having said that, like, whenever, wherever I am, wherever I've been, I've always kind of taken into account what it feels like to be in that place. And Chicago, growing up there, was a really complicated place. I mean, where I grew up in particular, Evanston was, was really interesting, real diverse place. 
Um, mostly, you know, it was a, my, my school is 40% black, 40% white, 20% Asian and Latino. Now, the whites were all Jews, so I didn't know any white people until I got to college. And that was like mind-blowing for me. I was like, holy cow, they have guns. I'm joking. But am I, though? Uh, but so, you know, being in Chicago and being in that, that um, some of the more kind of segregated kind of spaces in that city and how that city is actually laid out had a really uh, a specific, you know, effect on me. And then coming to New York and having kind of a different experience had an effect on me. And then, you know, throughout my travels, I kind of take little grains from a lot of different places that I go, whether, you know, a trip to Spain can kind of give me an idea. I go to the Miro Museum. I, you know, artists as a whole, I think, are often like deeply affected by place. And even thinking about the show that we're working on here, you know, part of the conversation that we've been having is very much about place. Like, what is this place? Like, what does it look like? I've done shows in, in uh, Marfa, Texas, and you know, I was just, the, the dryness of the land, all I wanted to do was just like put lotion on the ground. I was just like, somebody needs to heal this land. This is incredibly dry here, right? And so like, in an absurd way, I then actually take shea butter and I, and I, and I put it in a vehicle that then distributes it onto the ground. And, and I'm like, well, maybe this will work. That's ridiculous, right? But that's what, that's what art is, right? That's what art can be. And, and I think some people think um, they get disappointed when I talk about how ridiculous an art object can be. Um, but it can. It's, it's, it's fascinating that art objects have the agency, like we discussed earlier, to be just themselves, right? They can make a point. They can be serious, they can be deliberate, they can be exaggerated, but they can also be just kind of like received and they can, they can, they can put into the world ideas that no one would ever have because they would never work. And then we, we, we still participate with them because that's kind of the absurdity and the fun of, of what an art object can do and can be and make you think differently than you would have prior. Yeah, it's all about possibility. Yeah. Right. So um, you made reference to your mom and um, and her being an academic, and and I know that your family uh, was super impactful on you and and how you developed. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything else about that. Yeah, it's hard to be raised by an academic. Some of you people may have done this to your children, um, but it's interesting. I mean, you're, they're they're constantly asking you to engage. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, in my practice and in my life has been incredibly helpful. I, I'm not equipped to do anything else as a result, you know. I, I just don't have the kind of pragmatism that it takes to do anything else. I, I feel like I'm bright, a bright person, but I just am not a capable person in that way, if that makes sense. But, uh, I mean, I think really the reward of, of, of my family was that, critical thinking was at the top of the list. And it wasn't as simple as, as uh, finding something to blame. There was always a sense of personal responsibility. There was always a sense of, you know, how does this thing work? Not just an assumption that something does work or something does not work or something is, is, is inherently going to fail. And in that way, there was an optimism, you know? And, and I still carry that optimism today. And I still feel incredibly optimistic, even though I may have said some fairly pessimistic things, I still feel incredibly optimistic about the possibilities, you know, not only as an artist to make interesting and engaging and complicated things, but as people to heal wounds and, and, and start to, uh, you know, start to think about the challenges that that we're collectively facing and, and start to solve some of those problems. So, you know, that's what I think I got from, from them and from that experience. Yeah. So I, I feel sort of compelled to ask you if, um, if through your art and through your words um, and through what you're putting in the world, um, you hope to be aspirational. Gosh, aspirational is really tough. Um, 
I've never really thought much about being aspirational. Is that a dirty word? No, I think it actually is a word that involves a lot of personal responsibility. It does. It does. Um, you know, if, if that is the result, then I accept that. You know, if that, I, I <clears throat> look, I could give this talk tomorrow and I could give like a full talk on Afro-pessimism, right? So like today with you guys, because you've given me such great feedback and energy and I'm being honored, I feel really optimistic. You know, this is good. These are, these are good things. This is a good time. Tomorrow, eh, I mean, who knows, right? But aspirational and my sense of optimism, which is obviously present, so I'm kind of exaggerating the potential for this kind of return to pessimism. But uh, I, I like the idea that, that, that my work or my presence could be aspirational. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that uh, some, I think maybe there's like a sense of embarrassment in the question, right? Like, oh no, not me. Or you were kind of joking at lunch, like, oh, don't make me sing, right? You know, like that kind of thing, like, oh, you know, sort of stepping back from it. But, but I think it's, it's a time actually where we have to step up and um, step into that responsibility that comes from putting things out in the world and the role that culture, I think, needs, you know, to play, so. No, I agree, absolutely. So you often uh, work with other people, you often collaborate with other people and um, specifically musicians. And I wanted to ask about the role of music in your work and who you like to work with and, and why. I mean, music has always played a huge role in my life. I mean, starting from just being in the studio and, and needing to, to listen to something other than NPR because um, for years I would just listen to NPR and it was terrifying. But I did that because I was by myself. Like, if, you know what an interesting thing that you should always talk to artists about is being by yourself, right? Like many of you probably not spent the kind of time by yourself that many artists do. I mean, we sit in, in rooms oftentimes for like full days, you know, and no one comes in and now nobody calls you because everyone just texts. So you need to have a voice, right? You need to like hear something, right? It's like, um, and so for years it was like Terry Gross, you know? Like Terry would come on, I thought we were like in a relationship. <laughs> like when she went on vacation, I was like, like why wasn't I invited, you know? It was like, it was like a real thing. And then so from there I really turned back to, to music. And, and in particular, um, avant-garde jazz gave me this kind of opportunity to just think out of the box. And I was listening to a lot of noise stuff. I was listening to Sun Ra, I was listening to Ornette Coleman. I was listening to, you know, just really, really complicated stuff. Cecil Taylor and, and what those guys did, just like kind of off the cuff, was just, was just so brilliant and so beautiful. And, and, and the way that they just kind of moved around sound was really interesting. And, you know, it wasn't only that. I was listening to like quite a few different things, but, um, you know, so, when I started thinking about collaborations with musicians, it was more kind of like giving them space than anything else, like a work that I made, like, like this one, um, Antoine's organ. This, you know, I, I, I met this young musician, and he didn't have a piano. He didn't have a place to play. And so I, I, I went to go listen to him, and I rented a, a space in Midtown where uh, you can just have a pianist. You know, they have, there's a piano, and you can just come in. He rented for an hour. And he played so beautifully, I thought to myself, oh, you know, I, I should make a place for this guy to play. You know, I should make a, I should give him a, a space. And so I, you know, I was working on this sculpture and I actually just kind of built a platform and actually just put a piano in it. So in, in an interesting way, it's, it's, it's a collaboration, but it's kind of like I did my part and then I kind of just gave the piece to, to the musician. And when it travels and goes to institutions, you know, they, they, uh, have the, the right to program it. So it's just fascinating the different kinds of people who then kind of turn this work on, right? Different, kind of, different kinds of musicians from different walks of life, different places, whether it was in Milwaukee or New York or uh, Kansas City and wherever it goes next. Uh, so in an interesting way, I, I think about it less as a collaboration as, as much as I think about um, just providing 
space are providing an opportunity for a musician. So the, this is a perfect work to ask a question about living objects in your work. And I guess how you choose them, what role they play, why they're there. You know, I, I always thought it was interesting to make something that people had to take care of, honestly. That, like, you also had a job. It's like, it wasn't just me. It was like, we all have to, like, keep this thing alive. We have to water this thing. We have to, you know, sing to this thing. We have to give this thing love. And that there were so many kind of just, like, moments in a work like this that it felt like my brain. But, I, you know, I was always obsessed with Marcel Bruder's and like his use of plants and this idea of kind of poetry and plants. And some of you may remember, but I only have seen it in photographs, but places like the Museum of Modern Art, they used to have plants in the galleries. It was just kind of like a thing. There'd be like a potted plant and like a de Kooning, you know? And it was just such an interesting thing. And I'm like, where did that go? Like, what happened to that thing? Like, whose job was that? Like, was that the curator who was like, we're going to put the plants in here? Like, has the curator's job changed? Or was that just some guy who was like, I'm the plant guy at the museum or whatever? But I was just really fascinated by that. And I'd look through a lot of old texts, and you'd see these, like, kind of plants sitting, you know, in the corners in the space. And so it always made me think of, uh, of institutions and of historical kind of iconographic moments in art and art history. And so, you know, and, and, and kind of the poetry of Boudère's and, and all of that stuff. So it has kind of an, an art historical footnote that kind of brings me to it. And then it also has this kind of, this kind of um, interest in kind of the responsibility that one has to, to a material, to keep something alive, to participate with it. Levels of engagement, it's a shield. It's also kind of something that's fairly fragile. And fragility is just so, interesting to me, like we were talking about my film, you know, when I cast the film, I wanted to cast, I didn't want to cast a big, strong guy. I wanted to cast like a thin guy, you know, like this guy who you just see him and you think, oh, like this guy is fragile, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not as often that, in particular, in the case of, of black males, that we get to negotiate this idea of fragility, right? We always see this, um, these, these examples of strength, you know, they often come in the form of like guys who are 6'8", 250 pounds, right? And those are oftentimes the kind of heroic black male figures that we negotiate. Are there, you know, Vin Diesel or something? Is he black? Pretty sure. Uh, but, you know, if we can start to think about this idea of fragility, if, if I can paint a different picture in some ways of what the black male character can be, and that he can be this fragile character, that he can be this character that's negotiating difficult psychological terms. I call it negrosis. You know, some of you call it neurosis. Um, but that, you know, there's this complicated thing happening, you know, in the heads of these people. And, and oftentimes, we're not getting to, to dig into those crevices, those really interesting, those really engaging spaces, because we're, 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 we're not imagining those, those people or those objects as being fragile. And, and this object is fragile. You know, this is, this is a steel sculpture. So it feels bold. It feels robust. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was standing in front of a Carl Andre sculpture today, you know, one of, the, one of the floor works. And I love those things. You can stand on them and you can participate with them. And, and it, it makes me think about going to visit Marfa and you go to the Donald Judds. And the first thing they tell you is, don't go in the Judd. You can't stand on top of the Judds. You can't walk inside the Judds, etc. The guy goes away. Everybody gets in the Judd. <laughs> You know, like everybody is like on top of the Judd taking selfies. And, you know, I, I, I always love the idea that you could kind of inhabit an artwork, right? Um, like Andre allows you to stand on the object. Like in this object, it's like I'm in there. It's like I forced my body and my things and the things I'm interested in and materials kind of into that space and then kind of give, give you an opportunity to witness me kind of, you know, misbehaving in a way with a minimalist object. And, uh, and that's kind of how I think about these sculptures. All right, I have like a hundred more questions, but I'm gonna open it up to the audience for a few questions here. Who wants to ask first? 
Is everyone in a trance? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Larry. Here, Michelle's coming. I thought one of your most cathartic series happened when the drawing center asked you to do something, and maybe you weren't into drawing at the time, but uh, these frenetic faces that came out with the anxious men. Uh, so I want to ask how that changed your approach going forward, and also in the terms of having a beautiful son named Julius, and how much um, anxiousness he might face going forward, and are you positive about things going forward? No, I mean, that's interesting. I, I do feel positive about things going forward. That body of work did, it, it was a significant body of work for me, and I think you see it scroll through. Um, just, and there's even an example, I think, of that show. But, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, at the time, it's interesting because there was so much happening politically and so much happening in the world, you know, that everyone, you know, assumed that this body of work was, was um, about those things. And in a lot of ways, it was. But I was also, like, just getting sober after, like, drinking a lot my whole life. And so, you know, I had this young son, this, like, little boy. And then I remember... My mother said to me at some point, she said, well, how are you going to explain to him, you know, the world that he's inheriting? And I was like, holy shit, I, it's my job? <laughs> and no one tells you that when you have kids. Like, you forget, like, because we've all become so callous, right? Because we've all learned to navigate and to kind of deal with the world that we live in, the good and the bad of it, you forget, you know, or you don't know until you have one, that when you have children, they're so, I don't know, they're, they're so fragile, you know? And that, that it's your job to tell them about ugliness is like terrifying, you know? And so kind of thinking about how this body of work came to be was like part of that negotiation, you know, is how I was gonna explain some aspects of the world, and there are so many good, um, but there are others, you know, to, to my young son. And, and, and then obviously things that I was dealing with personally and negotiating. And then things that we were all kind of collectively dealing with. When I made this body of work, I thought they were self-portraits. And then everyone came to me and they were like, why did you make a portrait of me? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not exclusively about me, right? This is, not, uh, this is not only my story, this is not only my journey. And that kind of led to me making what I called these audiences, you know? So it was like these kind of just these groups of us. It was like, they were so cathartic. It was just like, we're all here. Like, we're all in this. Like, it's you guys right now. Like, I can see you, you know? You're like in these rows and like, you're just sitting there and we all have, you know, the different things that we're kind of negotiating. And, and uh, so that idea of an audience or that anxious audience, right? Those, the, those anxious witnesses. And, you know, I got so much joy from them. And, you know, it also gave me, you know, I could like move my body really quickly in the morning, right? Like it was like a workout first thing when I got to the studio. And I don't know, in a lot of ways it set me free. Yes? As your son grows up, do you want him to explore and love the art world or do you prefer he stay away from it? Uh, I would prefer that he'd stay as far away from it <laughs> as possible. Uh, you know, engineering is cool. I think uh, there's a lot of jobs in the technology sector. Uh, you know, I, being an artist is just such a complicated thing. You know, I think it's so rewarding, you know, and there's so many artists here who, like, who know this. It's so rewarding and it's so amazing. But, you know, there's two problems. One is that you're never off work. And two is that you never retire. Like, have you seen these people? Like, you never stop doing this. Like, so many of you are like, yeah, I'm going to hit a certain age, and, like, I'm going to, like, hang it up. There's going to be a gold watch and all kinds of stuff. There's no gold watch for me. I have to do this for, like, a long time. You know? Like, as long as I'm here, I'm going to be doing this. But, you know, that I love. But uh, it's a great question. I hope that he does something else, unless he really, really, really loves this. Yeah, yeah Nancy. Uh, thank you so much for such a thoughtful talk. Um, 
I really recognize in your work an incredible beauty to it, but at the same time, uh, the directness of your uh, message. How do you balance the aesthetic object with the experience you're trying to create? No, that's a, that's a good question. That's something I've really, you know, been very conscious of. Because I'm an esthete, you know. I like, I like objects. I like materials. I like to see what they can do. I like to push them. Um, there's, that, there's, of course, that dichotomy in my work, right, where I am interested in ideas. I am interested in concept. I'm interested in how those things live, speak, and can be translated in an artwork. But I don't want to do that at the expense of, 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 of making something that I want to be engaged with, that I find, that I find interesting. So honestly, it's a, it's a balance um, daily to kind of figure that out. But I also, um, you know, I grew up in a generation where, where, where people, uh, aesthetics were not necessarily uh, uh, championed. You know, it was, it was, conceptual art was the king, you know, and it didn't matter what the object looked like. And um, so I had to break myself of that because in a way I'm, I'm a poet and I like things, you know, and I think a lot of that has changed. And I think you see a lot of makers who have a similar relationship to objects uh, as, as, as I do. But that, that took me time to develop, um, to, to forgive myself for thinking that beauty was okay. Um, that, that took time. That was a genuine struggle for me. I grew up like art in the 90s, and it was not okay, you know, yeah. So I am grateful for the conversation and your openness to talk about things that are so true and specifically the um, idea of fragility and acknowledging what it means to be fragile. And I think within that there comes some freedom and I'm happy to have you talk with us about that too. So art and life, it all comes together. So thank you very much. And before you clap, I just want to invite everyone to come to Casterline Goodman and the Baldwin Gallery for Preview Crush. We are crushing it this week and um, thrilled to have you here, Rashid, and a lot of the other artists who um, are participating as well. And we couldn't do what we do without every single one of you. Thank you. You had many other things that you could be doing tonight from five to six, and we are grateful that you were here to participate with us in a conversation about art because it does matter. Thank you so much.